Hi listeners, Hunter here. On behalf of Amy and I, we both hope you and your loved ones are coping okay in these trying times. The episode you're about to hear is an interview that we recorded about two weeks before the coronavirus pandemic hit, a time I've got to say that already feels very, very distant. With everything going on, it took a bit longer than intended to get this episode out. Amy and I are planning on doing some episodes relating to coronavirus, probably something on anxiety or coping with limited social contact, that kind of thing. But we're also planning on doing some more lighthearted content as well for any of you looking for a distraction or brief escape. Is there anything that you would like us to cover? Please message us on Twitter or email us at twoshrinkspod at gmail.com. That's T-W-O shrinkspod at gmail.com. And please enjoy this episode. It's a really, really great discussion and I learned a lot. In the beginning of the history of experimental observation or any other kind of observation on scientific things, it's intuition. It's intuition. Which is really based on just experience with everyday objects that suggest reasonable explanations for things. Welcome to Two Shrinks Pod. My name's Hunter Mulcair. And I'm Amy Donaldson. This is a podcast all about psychology. On this episode, we are going to talk about the psychological aspects of surviving a bushfire and coping afterwards. But first, some background. Australia has a long history of bushfires. I grew up hearing stories about the 1983 Ash Wednesday bushfires where 75 people died. This was the deadliest series of bushfires until 2009, where in 46 degree conditions, 170 people died in fires that raged on a day that became known as Black Saturday. The summer of 2019 and 2020 saw bushfires rage across the countryside in a manner that scared and shocked Australians and sent shivers around the world after images of terrified people, blackened landscapes and dead or dying wildlife were beamed across the globe. Fortunately, the death toll was comparably low to previous fires. 34 people have died in or because of the fires to date. But the scale of destruction is massive and frankly, it's just difficult to comprehend. Around 5,900 buildings were destroyed, including almost 2,800 homes, and an estimated 1 billion animals were killed by the fires. Estimates of the burned area put it at 18.6 million hectares, that's 186,000 square kilometres, or 72,000 square miles. Or, to put it more clearly, the Guardian newspaper stated that an area bigger than Ireland was blackened by the fires. In recognition of the psychological impact that's likely to follow these fires, Australian government has boosted funding for people who have been directly or indirectly impacted by them. This includes access to 10 Medicare sessions with Medicare-registered counsellor or psychologist. We'll provide some links to how to access these services in the show notes. Given this backdrop of the terrifying bushfires, we decided to speak to a psychologist who has an interest in working with survivors of bushfires. On this episode today, we want to talk about some of the common reactions to living through a bushfire and coping afterwards, and to explore how a psychologist would help someone in this situation. So we'd like to introduce Danielle Graber, who is a clinical psychologist and director of 12 Point Psychology, a clinic located in Ferntree Gully in the east of Melbourne. She's a volunteer with the Red Cross Disaster Network and her work includes animal-assisted therapy. Welcome to Two Shrinks Pod and thanks for coming on. Thanks very much for having me. I'm very happy to be talking to you guys. Nice. Can you tell us a bit about your background of working with people surviving a bushfire? Sure. I got interested in that after Black Saturday here in Victoria. Mm -hmm. I moved to Victoria only a few months before Black Saturday and I was working with someone, we were actually in the middle of our masters, we were running a group program and we were standing in uh, in a really tall building and watching the smoke come in 
from the north of the city and the the person I was co-facilitating with was that's that's where she lived she lived out in King Lake and she was watching that smoke come in and and standing there talking with her and starting to get messages of what was happening up in that area I just had a a, a very strong desire to help in some way mm. I I'm terrible with my hands. I can't build fences or, um, or repair houses, but I can talk to people and I can I can share some of what I have learnt over the years to help them with the psychological recovery that um, that comes in the immediate and long term aftermath of something like that. So I got I signed up with the Red Cross Disaster Response Network then, and a lot of that work is supporting people on the ground. Mm-hmm. One thing that we have found after disasters of this nature so after black saturday after the queensland floods a lot of people want to talk to people that were there on the day Mm. or or during the the disaster and for people outside the immediate area the best response often is supporting those who are on the ground supporting those affected so talking to the volunteers who were who were there and and working face to face talking to local GPs and giving them some ideas of what sort of things to be looking out for, talking to counsellors and psychologists who live in that area and who may have been affected themselves but are also trying to support the rest of the community. That's where I sort of got, where I got really interested and and where I've sort of been working ever since in, in response to disasters like that. Hmm. It sounds really, really fascinating. So this idea of rather than sort of being parachuted in to sort out the problems, it's sort of about mm. s- supporting and sort of almost providing supervision to other mm. uh, professionals in the area, that kind of thing? Very much, very much. It's fantastic if you can, uh, if you do have connections into any of the disaster-affected areas and you can work directly, but that's not always possible. And especially something with these current fires, the scale of the disaster is just, it's it's unfathomable mm. yeah um, you can't possibly be everywhere but you can help support the people who are already there and who are already doing that work and and in that way you end up reaching more people than if you were trying to do it one-on-one yeah or focusing on one-on-one i definitely do still 12 points as a practice and me personally we definitely do still offer services um usually telehealth to people who are wanting to connect with with a clinician outside the immediate area but it, it just is not as common as it is to actually be be talking to and, and hearing from other health professionals already in the area yeah interesting is that the case over time as well is it one of those things where you continue supporting the clinicians in that area in the sort of months afterwards or is it more yeah, at absolutely. the time of the fires Absolutely. And I think with this with this one in particular, because, again, the scale was just so massive, mm. whereas things like Black Saturday, it was it was one day. The floods was over a period of a couple of days. This has been months and months and months and months. So I think the recovery, the acute recovery stage is going to go much longer than normal. And we're going to see the long-term effects happening, sort of like a little bit of a domino effect. Mm. Yeah. There's going to be people who are affected at the beginning and, and they're going to hit their long-term recovery phase, you know, at the same time that other people are just hitting their acute recovery phase. Mm. I think there's going to be that long-term need. That long-term need is going to be even longer than it normally is. Mm. Yeah. Well, we saw a lot of television footage of clearly distressed people, mm. uh, traumatised people, 
And I guess we are really interested in how you might work with someone in that position. Your website, 12pointpsychology.com, has lots of useful info about people's psychological responses to fires. Perhaps can you start telling us what kinds of problems do people experience when they've been through a disaster like a bushfire? It's, it's, it's quite interesting, actually, because obviously, you know, individual differences come into it. Everyone's, everyone can be quite different in how they respond, depending on, you know, their previous experiences, their, their temperament, their innate resilience, all of that kind of thing. But you do tend to see sort of clusters of behaviours. So immediately after the disaster, you actually get a little bit of a euphoric effect. Most people, once they realise they've survived they feel good about that <laughs> and understandably so they are happy that they survived yeah um like a relief almost in a way yeah 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 it's it's a it's a relief it's a wow i'm counting my blessings now mm. and for some people that can last a few hours a few days but it can be quite euphoric and they are actually turn down help at that point okay then in the days and weeks following, we start to see more of the acute stress reactions. So that can be just extremes of mood. So um, extreme sadness, extreme anger, extreme irritability, extreme sensitivity to certain politicians who may or may not have been <laughs> particularly helpful. Um, we see really extreme reactions. And that's very normal as well. That's very, very normal. As the meaning of what they've lost starts to come into effect when they start to process, you know, they might have, for example, they might have saved the house, but they've lost their property and they've lost their stock. Hmm. What does that mean for them? And what does that mean for, because everyone will be telling them, you know, come on, get back into your routine. They might not be able to do that. Hmm. Places like Mogo on the south coast that were just completely decimated, all the local shops, people have lost where they work, people have lost the place where they go and get their morning coffee. There is no routine anymore to fall back into. Hmm. So we just see a lot of yeah extreme emotions and people who are just feeling really at a loss, not knowing kind of where to next. Yeah, because, hmm. I mean, if you think about that anchor of the security of someone's home, as being their mm. safe base. Mm. And then, mm. you know, there was this footage of people, you know, in pictures of these people, people's houses, they're just gone, like literally just gone. You know, there's sort of the foundations yeah. are left and just muck everywhere. And, yeah. you know, I think that that was, it was images like that that got me really thinking about, well, how do you work with that as a psychologist? Because that's so fascinating. And then also the idea of, I guess, like that that's people who's, who've lost things but then also i guess i'm wondering are there people who have narrow escapes and how do they what, what kind of reactions do they come up with and, and what goes on with them it, it it can be it's a terrible answer it's a bit of a shrink's answer but it, it can be you know how long is a piece of string yeah i i think a lot of it comes down to it, it, it's very similar to grief work yep. in a way because but you've got to find out what they're actually grieving so are they grieving the photos and, and Nana's cuckoo clock and that type of thing? Are they grieving the loss of safety? Are mm. they grieving the loss of, I'm a good person who do, does good things, so good things should happen? Yes. It's what, yeah, what, what they're actually grieving, what the loss means to them. And for those who had narrow escapes, we see a lot more of the acute stress type reactions and sometimes survivor's guilt is pretty pretty prevalent i think if i had to yeah if i had to sort of characterize it as a whole 
we just see a lot of really confused people. They mm. just they don't understand why this happened. They don't understand how it happened. Yep. They don't understand just the physics of how quickly it can happen. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they're very confused and very lost. Yeah, very confused. I mean, so, you know, for, for listeners who don't know what an acute stress reaction, that's sort of really like short-term PTSD really, isn't it? So that's, yeah. so in my understanding of that is re-experiencing an event. So that might be nightmares, that might be flashbacks, kind of heightened startle reflexes, avoidance of anything that reminds them of, of the event, things like that. Have mm. I missed? Those are the main things, I mm. think. Yeah, no, Absolutely. Well, I suppose if it's okay to talk, I suppose to bring it to the personal level, mm. the reason that I created the Neighbours in Recovery Facebook group and website was because my in-laws live on the South Coast and they came very, very close to losing their home. Mm. And I just think that theirs is a really good example of the types of people that we are trying to help either directly or indirectly. And... They saved their house, but my father-in-law was there when the flames came up the hill and their house went from, we're probably okay to, we might lose the house or die mm. in less than five minutes. Yeah. Mm. And they fled and they made it out and the fireys actually managed to save the house. They lost everything else. They lost the, the property, the barns, the sheds. The it was a rural property, so they lost all of all of that stuff. And when they got back, you could see the fire got to within about a meter of the house. And wow. so there's the house and a little patch of grass, and then everything else is just black and burnt. And they're living there, hmm. and they're living there with no power for three weeks. They're living there with, there were worries about the water supply. And every time they look out the window, they're re-experiencing the trauma. Yeah. One of the questions that we had is, how is it different working with this kind of trauma situation to other traumas? I mean, I think you're really touching on that there, uh, is that, you know, someone who's had a past trauma, say they were assaulted or something, in, in a particular place, they're, they're not necessarily re-experiencing it, but they're not, they're not in it. Whereas no. it sounds like that, yeah, they're right in it. How do you, what's mm. what's the first step with that? She's rolling her eyes, she doesn't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's, look, the first step really, um, especially at this stage when we're still early days for a lot of the, of the people who've been affected is the bread and butter of our work is just listening and letting mm. them talk. And as they talk, they'll start to reveal you, you will, you'll start to hear them talk about the key themes that are important to them. So with people who have lost their home, it might be as simple as quite practical supports, just making sure that, you know, they might have lost all of their, it uh, doesn't happen so much anymore, but they might have lost their whole address book. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, they're making sure that they know who to contact within their community as well. I suppose the the main thing is letting them know that what they're experiencing is normal, mm. letting them know because we're talking about this is where the big thing is as opposed to someone who's come to see a psychologist because they've had a past trauma in their life and it's affecting how they're living their day-to-day -day life and I want to work on this past trauma to kind of 
fix my present. Yeah. Fix is in inverted commas. But for people within, say, bushfire-affected communities, they haven't chosen to be clients Mm. And we have to be very aware of that, yeah. that that 80% of people won't need anything more than a little bit of of a nice chat, really, mm. some some normalization and some some strategies to help them with sleep over the next couple of weeks, that type of thing. They, they, they really don't need a lot mm. in terms of intervention. They just need a little bit of support and a little bit of normalizing and and knowing that they have that support not just from you as the clinician or as as the person doing the mental health first aid or or whatever it might be but things like the firefight concert was amazing because it showed them this huge support that they have Hmm. for 80 percent of people in the bushfire affected areas that will be all that they need and I think we do have to be careful not to sort of over pathologize and get in there and try and fix something that's not actually you know, this this acute stress reaction is the brain's way of processing what's happened and, and trying to make sense of it and and find some meaning in it and all of that kind of thing. Because our brains really like to, our, our, our brains don't like a vacuum. They like things to make sense. Yeah. Because I was going to say my understanding is that you if you launch in and try and make people talk about something initially, yeah. like this this idea of, do you know you've got a debrief after a traumatic event, is actually counterproductive and doesn't show much benefit. Yeah. And I think what's interesting is what you're sort of saying relates back to the work I do with cancer patients, which is that, you know, I work in radiotherapy and there's, you know, about 30% of patients will experience some kind of level of distress is sort of an estimate that I've read. And for the rest of them, they're, they're kind of okay. And, and the work I have is often sort of saying, well, look, it actually sort of sounds like you're pretty normal. These these things are yeah. normal. And you, you catch up on the next week and like, do you need to see me again? Like, look, I don't think so. Mm. And, you know, which is a bit disconcerting when you first start as a therapist, I think. But <laughs> so. No, no, you need me. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly right. Are you finding that it's different for people of different ages, so like working with children or hearing about children's experiences in this environment? Yeah, kids are – I mean, kids are so awesome anyway. (laughs) They're they're, they're so resilient. um, I think we can learn a lot from how they do cope with this stuff. Mm -hmm. They want to talk about it when they want to talk about it and – then they're done. Like mm. they're just sort of for for a lot of kids. Obviously, that's not everybody, but for a lot of kids, it's like yeah, this is what happened, and they definitely look to the adults to to gauge their reaction. And if they can see that you know, mom or dad or, or whoever it is is talking about it, is open about it, but doesn't dwell on it, then they tend to have a pretty good good reaction Hmm. with kids it really depends uh, again on on sort of personal losses so i have worked with kids who lost friends Mm -hmm. and that can that's a whole different ball game Hmm. because that often introduces the idea of death before they're developmentally ready for it yeah and that can require some ongoing some ongoing work and also the idea that that someone their age can die as well I think exactly. is quite a you know exactly. it's such a challenging thing for kids to realize that yeah exactly. yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and dying in a way that is I was gonna say not natural but I think unusual unexpected yeah, yeah unexpected maybe it's probably yeah, a good way absolutely and so, there's no warning there's no you know when I've worked with kids who maybe have lost a peer 
at school through illness. Mm. There's often been there's been a lead up. There's yeah. been a there's been discussions beforehand. Whereas with these types of things, again, it's the it's the speed of it. And even though in Australia, yes, we we know that bushfires happen. Nobody ever thinks it's going to happen to them. Mm. There's some really interesting data on recovery in terms of how people prepared beforehand and that includes preparing the kids the the research says that if you have if you live in a bushfire prone area or a flood prone area or an area prone to natural disasters if you have a evacuation plan in place and you discuss that with the family and with the kids if you have to do that everyone adjusts better. Hmm. Everyone is more likely to adjust better. But a lot of us don't do that because we all think it won't happen to us. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So it's that kind of family system thing that yeah. it depends on how the parents are responding and how people are prepared and all of that sort of thing. I, I, yeah. I personally had a friend of mine who was on the south coast of New South Wales and, yeah, he said it was pretty terrifying to kind of go because he was there with his daughter and his, I think oh. his parents-in-law his four-year-old daughter and yeah he had to sort of say all right well we're going to practice going down to the beach and this is where we're going to shelter and i think that was a pretty you know a pretty difficult thing to kind of think through initially but it was helpful oh, i mean yeah. they didn't have to do that eventually which is good but, but you can also see why some parents wouldn't want to do that in terms of like not wanting to scare the kids or not wanting kind of yeah. you know protecting them through not sharing that information or, and then has the counter. Yeah, or protecting themselves. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, but remembering as well with kids like anything else, if if you treat it as no big deal, they'll treat it as no big deal. Mm. And that's the way I think to approach evacuation plans and that kind of stuff. This is just something that we do. Yeah. And then at least if they, if they have rehearsed it and they've had time to think, I think some of the most difficult conversations that I've had is with kids and some of the things that they've lost mm. and you know and they talk about their particular security blanket or, or, or their particular item and soft toys and or whatever they, it is yeah and they yeah it's 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 really it's really quite hard <laughs> um and they just wish that they'd been able to take it and, mm. and I think having that evacuation plan in place beforehand so they can say, oh, okay, if we're going to evacuate, then I really want to make sure I take my blanket mm. and give them that chance to identify those things. Because, yeah, it is, it is really, really sad sometimes hearing them talk about what's, what's, what's been left behind. Mm. And There's something, something as, I think that's something that we all as humans can connect with because we've all had and still have things that we have very much sentimental attachment to that... Mm you know, doesn't make sense on any kind of technical, rational level. Yeah. Yeah. doesn't have a function. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, but yeah. it's just really important to us. And it's something that, yeah, if we were to lose it suddenly, like that would hurt. Mm. And as adults, we can, you know, rationalise afterwards and things. There was, there was an awesome article uh, on the ABC site. I can't remember the journalist's name. I'm sorry. But he lost his house in Batemans Bay. And he was the one who was talking about his mother's cuckoo clock mm. that she had lugged around in a backpack all across Europe when she was 21 and brought home. And it had always, you know, it had always been in the house and it had always been a fixture for him and for his kids and that kind of thing. And their devastation of that being something that they just never get back. Mm. Yeah. It's that thing of how we make meaning of what home is and what what security yes. is and stuff like that and that that can be something that moves from place to place it's not necessarily the house that's the biggest thing yeah yeah, yeah absolutely yeah are you noticing different reactions from people who had 
pre-existing mental health issues versus those who haven't? Yeah, yeah. Any type of um, big disaster like this is always, I mean, it's devastating for everyone, but particularly anyone with pre-existing mental or physical health issues. Again, sometimes it's just in, in practical terms. They might have lost access to their GP. They might have lost access to their medication, yeah. might have lost access to their support network. One of the psychs I know who works up near Maruga on the south coast was personally really affected by the fires as well, hasn't been able to see her clients for a while. Mm. All of those things just compound the trauma. And if you think about it in terms of cumulative stress and cumulative trauma, then yes, those who have pre-existing mental health conditions tend to be quite negatively affected. Although, interestingly enough, sometimes those with previous mental health conditions they already have some good coping strategies in place. Yeah. They already have some good, you know, resilience building skills in place. You know, they, they've actually had a bit of practice being a client or, or mm. using psychological strategies as opposed to the general layperson in the community, particularly rural regional communities who's never seen a psychologist, doesn't know what's involved, yeah. um, is worried we're going to get them to lay down on a couch and talk about their mothers. <laughs> um, they at least know some of this stuff works. Yeah, because I was I've read an article about and a writer had talked about well how would how would she cope in a crisis? She was talking about how she would have has her own you know issues, and she was sort of saying you know how how would I be able to be rescued if I can't even go outside or I don't like stuff? And it got me wondering because I I my sort of gut feeling was I thought actually for some people who paradoxically they might actually cope pretty well in a crisis and yeah. I, was, I was curious to know yeah. what you thought about that yeah. in terms of an acute situation yeah absolutely and again quite paradoxically I have had I had a client many years ago who had quite a severe anxiety disorder and it was quite debilitating so I found it very very difficult even yes to leave the house even getting to the mailbox was quite was quite challenging and there was a there was a natural disaster that necessitated leaving the house very very quickly and oddly enough after that they were like yeah i'm fine like <laughs> it was like the worst had happened mm. so and i survived and i didn't i didn't fall apart and i was actually able to do this so huh if i can leave under these conditions maybe i can leave to get the mail people are amazingly resilient really aren't they yeah, <laughs> they are. yeah. yeah. the thing that you said about people losing access to support i think it's been difficult i've had a few people who have contacted me in my workplace because they know one of my other clients and they the the person contacting me lives in an area that's affected by bushfires and they're asking whether they can come and see me you know three four hours away because they're existing mental health practitioners mm are no longer working or their clinic has been burnt down or whatever it might be. And it's been quite difficult to try and identify where to send them that might be closer and more reasonable because the idea of travelling by train, a couple of trains, for four hours to come and see me just seems like such a huge, a huge thing to do. Yeah. I think that there are, you know, people who are quite lost at where to refer people or what to... How to link people in. It was hard enough to link people in on, on the best of times. Especially in a rural area. Yeah. It's, yeah, yeah, it's difficult. Yeah, and it's that loss of support services is not something that I think I'd really thought about, mm. which is 
And I think that that kind of gets to the complexity of a disaster of particularly of this scale because it's such a large area that's been burnt. So mm. many communities are affected. You know, fortunately, the death toll was relatively slow compared to previous fires, but the just the scale of destruction and, and then this sort of that's kind of what I think about the complicating factors of recovery is can people get back to doing what they were normally doing or they can't go for a swim to de-stress because the, the pool's not there or whatever it is. No, exactly. And there's going to be a lot of communities, I think, that will never come back from this. Mm. There's just not enough of the community left for them to to rebuild. People need to work. People mm. are going to need to make money. And that, in a lot of cases, is going to necessitate leaving leaving their communities because there's nowhere left in the communities to work. Yeah. And that is going to have a massive flow-on effect as well. Yeah, you can imagine all yes. of those community groups and things that people drew on, even basic stuff like sports clubs or stuff like that. Yeah. But then, yeah. yeah, everybody scatters in different directions and you lose those contacts yeah. that you might not have other ways of contacting because it was just an incidental, this is the person I see on the weekend. Yeah. All of that disconnection. Yeah. Tell us, yeah. have you worked much with, uh, I guess, what the Americans would call first responders, so people who were fighting the fires or doing doing that kind of work and what sort of their experience been like i don't tend to see a lot of those guys and women personally they are usually the cfa and well the rural fire service in new south wales have actually gotten really good at at providing counselors and mental health support on the ground to the volunteers and to the first responders but what we do find with a lot of those people is they're they're very much of the the old school you know chin up buck up yeah Mm. um get on with it that type of thing they'll have a bit of a cry over a beer but and i swear i'm not even being stereotypical that is just that is just what happens Mm. They'll, they'll have a bit of a cry over a beer but but for the most part and again there's always an exception but for the most part they just want to get on with it i i heard a story from the south coast of a team who left some equipment behind at a house that they saved. And when they went back to get it, the owners of the house wanted to thank them and, and were, thank you so much. What can we do for you? Can we, you know, can we, can we, can we buy you some beer? Can we take you for breakfast? Can we like, like we want to do something. And they got really embarrassed and just kept saying, this, this is just what we do. This is, it's totally fine. It's totally fine. I don't think they really they have very little concept of how amazing they actually are and how grateful people are, even when they're not able to save property, even even when things do turn out badly. Yeah. The fact that there's people there literally running towards fire. Mm. Yeah, I, I really don't think they have any concept of just how amazing they are at that. And they tend not to seek out a lot of support for themselves. They're always saying, no, no, take care of those people first. I wonder if that's part of the the coping strategy or the headspace you need to be in to be able to do it if you were thinking wow this is an amazing thing that I'm doing and it's so huge and you know everybody would be so frightened whether it's you know much harder to to actually do the day-to-day kind of thing yeah that's kind of what I was thinking and then if someone is being nice to you then that takes you out of that frame Mm. and kind of and then a whole lot of complex emotions could potentially come up Mm. and I've heard cancer Mm. patients say similar things where they're like I'm fine until people start being really nice to me mm. and then I lose it. And yes. so they're like, I steer clear of people who give me the kind eyes. 
So. Yeah. Fair. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We all, we're, we're all entitled to our defences. <laughs> yeah, I have long discussions with my one of my clinical supervisors about the respecting denial and respecting avoidance. And mm. because I, like, I, I think about if I had to deal with a fiery uh, and they're like that, like the worst thing you can do is to try and unpack because uh, that's not what they want to do. And, you no. know... Uh, and they haven't been able to this this season. They really haven't had time to stop. No. I do think this will be uh, the long-term response is going to be something that we haven't really seen before, mm. just the sheer scale. And I think one of the things that's really interesting about these fires in particular is so we most psychologists are familiar with the idea that generally interpersonal trauma is the most likely to create uh, or lead to post-traumatic stress disorder mm-hmm. because we're social beings and when when that social construct is violated, that often leads to, to the most significant trauma responses. Whereas things like natural disasters, yes, you definitely get the development of PTSD, but you see it in much lower rates. Mm. So for natural disasters, the number of people who develop post-traumatic stress disorder following something like this is usually about 20%. So 20% of those affected will develop some sort of post-traumatic stress reaction, which means just means basically will be struggling with their mental health more than a month after the fires. Mm. Whereas with interpersonal trauma, it's so assaults, physical or sexual assaults or abuse, that type of thing. The numbers are much, much higher. The numbers are closer to sort of 80% of people will Mm. develop, will develop a post-traumatic stress reaction following interpersonal trauma. But I think the really interesting thing with these fires is a lot of people are taking it as interpersonal trauma. A lot of people are feeling really let down by people. They're feeling really let down by, you know, by our government or by policies. And I think it will be really interesting to see how people go with this because for a lot of people, this is still a natural disaster, but there's a personal component. Mm. Do you think that's to do with the scale of it or the initial responses or lack of responses? I think it's probably definitely the scale of it, mm. but but yeah, the, the responses or lack of responses and the lack of preparation for mm. it. Yeah, a lot of people on the ground are saying that we were warning people for a decade that something like this could happen and we were ignored mm. and now it's happened and it felt like we were being ignored again and so it's it's adding this personal this interpersonal component to the trauma that hasn't really been present to the same extent to a lot of natural disasters mm. uh, and i just i just think it will be interesting to see how that plays out yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, for international listeners to this podcast, they might not know, but just to give an idea, the Australian Prime Minister in December went on a holiday to Hawaii and was absent whilst there was smoke blanketing Sydney, one of the major cities. And there were news reports, I think, in November that 23 former fire chiefs and, and associated people had been lobbying the government to get more water bombers from America and other places and they'd yeah. been unable to get a meeting. And and of course, the uh, climate denial of the current political yeah. party that's in power. I think all of those things sort of combined to sort of make people feel very hurt and very angry. I mean, mm. I'm... And unheard and... I mean, yeah. I mean, I one of the reasons I wanted to do this pod was because I was I, I was so upset about 
about this situation and so worried about people and I I live in a city and I'm a city I'm definitely a city slicker and it was very scary for me to have smoke blanketing the city and not allowing my kids to go outside to play and I you know we weren't even under threat so yeah it's I think it's understandable that people find it personally personally difficult Mm. and remembering as well what's the 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 most common reaction after a trauma extreme emotions Mm. you throw that into the mix and this is this is why we are seeing some of some of the responses that there that we have seen but I think it's a really good point as well that even people in the cities, even people in, in you know, the middle of Sydney City, uh, in the middle of Melbourne, yeah, being blanketed by smoke like this. I'm from Sydney originally and I remember the fires in 94 because the city was sort of ringed by smoke mm. and I remember how much everyone was freaking out about that one <laughs> and cut to 2020 and we've got buildings in the middle of the city whose smoke detectors were going off because there's so much smoke in the building in the Mm. middle of the city. And nobody seems as freaked out about that. Well, nobody in power seems as freaked out Mm. about that, which is just really scary to me. Mm. That's been one of the other really interesting sort of effects of these fires that a lot of of the clients that I am working with face-to-face is actually people who've experienced disaster-related trauma in the past. So we're maybe there for Ash Wednesday or Black Saturday, and the fact that they're waking up, even in the city, with smoke all around them, is incredibly triggering yeah. um, and really difficult to deal with. So that's a lot of the face-to-face clients that we're seeing at the moment. It'll be months before we start seeing the um, the people in the bushfire-affected areas coming in for, for counselling yet, I would imagine. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that dovetails with my experience. I worked with a person who had been in the Philippines during a typhoon and every time there was big clouds outside, she was she was a mess. Unfortunately, poor darling. So, yeah. tell tell us. We, we've talked a lot about what goes on. What are people's reactions? I guess if it's not too big a question, like how do you, as a psychologist, go about working with someone? What are sort of some of the key approaches or theories that you use to unpack some of these problems with people? So. I'll just, I mean, speak to to sort of my my personal approach. There's lots of different theoretical approaches to working with um, to working with trauma clients. Initially, in the first month or two, it really is the mental health first aid approach. So it really is just getting into the basics. So getting into self care routines. One of the concepts that I use a lot is the base, mm-hmm. which is B A C E. So body care achievement and accomplishments, connection and entertainment, and trying to make sure that they're doing something in each of those categories fairly fairly regularly, because those are the things that are often most disrupted by disasters of this scale. Um, initially, it, it is lots of psychoeducation around this is what you can expect to be happening. This is maybe some sleep hygiene tips to help you get some better sleep. And I usually start introducing some relaxation strategies early on because they're going to come in really handy down the track if they do start to have more of an intense reaction, more of a a longer lasting reaction. So that's the acute phase. Do you guys know the, the disaster recovery graph? Um, I don't know if that's something that you're familiar with, but it's it's a graph that plots out where people are likely to be at different times after a disaster. And obviously there's a lot of 
give and take in the in the timelines but it basically says that in those first four to six weeks they're most interested in you know finding a place to live or making sure that they have access to food and water and electricity and and it's very much follows maslow's hierarchy of needs yeah i was about to say that sounds yeah i was gonna say that sounds very much like maslow (laughs) yeah so we take care of food and shelter and water and all that kind of stuff and then we start adding in sort of the higher ups so things like all right, not just food and water now, but are you accessing your regular medication? Are you able to have a shower? Mm. Um, and gradually sort of build them back up, get them back up Maslow's hierarchy, really. Then if they're requiring that that sort of 20% of people who are going to need more work, it's very much grief and trauma work or traumatic grief work. So my approach is I do a lot of cognitive behavioral trauma work or trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy because keeping in mind that a lot of these people are newbies when it comes to psychology services. So if you jump in with too much act and hippy-dippy kind of stuff, it tends to freak them out. (laughs) So we try and keep it very cognitive and very, very concrete if they're requiring more, then I look at things like EMDR or the, the newer flash technique mm-hmm. to process actual traumatic memories that might be keeping them stuck in the um, in the trauma itself. Yeah. Okay. That's a really great summary. Mm. So I really like that. There's just that idea of behaviorally intervening, getting them a safe base. Mm. And then if things are unfolding more, then it's about, I guess, leaning into that and kind of processing where they need to process how do you i mean i talk a bit about trauma on this pod Mm. but we haven't done our trauma pod yet it's going to be done at some point or series Mm. (laughs) series i want a series (laughs) yeah i think we should do that the but i guess uh, give us a taste of what what cbt for trauma or or emdr looks like i mean just choose one doesn't have to be both well i'll go with i'll go with emdr just because i'm personally really excited about emdr and what it has to offer in this space oh sorry that's um i i movement <laughs> desensitization reprocessing that's it yeah, thank you Amy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. emdr has been around for 40 years now and funnily enough francine shapiro who developed the protocol did so after her own cancer treatment and she noticed when she was going through for her afternoon walks through the woods, the more she sort of let her eyes flit around to the different treetops, the better she felt about the the cancer treatment she was going through uh, and developed this processing protocol that helps move memories. The key difference between a traumatic memory and the memory of like what you had for breakfast is the breakfast memory is sitting where it's supposed to it's sitting in the temporal lobes it's it's normal memory processing you can remember what you had for breakfast without tasting what you had for breakfast if that makes sense whereas traumatic memories tend to get stuck in the amygdala in the emotion center of the brain so you can't recall the memory without recalling how you felt what you smelt what you were tasting at the time it's a it's a full sensory re-experiencing and that's what happens in ptsd when they are having flashbacks, their 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 brain hasn't their brain can't tell the difference between this happened in the past and this is happening now. Hmm. It feels like you are re-experiencing the whole trauma again. So EMDR aims to move 
those traumatic memories from the amygdala and the emotion center of the brain to the temporal lobes and just normal memory where you can recall, okay, this is what happened, but you're not having to re-experience it every time you think about it. So you can imagine how how debilitating it can be if you were someone, for example, who, you know, survived Black Saturday and then and you've moved out of a rural area and you're living in the city, but then you wake up one morning and you smell the smoke, your brain will take you back and you might see your house burning. You mm. might see the animals in the paddock dying. You might hear them crying. All of that's happening to you while you're lying in your bedroom in Quran. Like it, it's it's terrifying and incredibly debilitating. So if we can move that memory from from having to re-experience it every time you are triggered or reminded, you're able to then go, okay, there's smoke in the room, right here, right now. I'm safe. That's not happening now. Hmm. I'm okay. And you're able to continue to you're able to get back to functioning. It's an amazing process. It's amazing. Yeah, it's fascinating just to hear about really, isn't it? I was going to say the way I sort of often think about it is that a traumatic memory is like, you know, you've got a window on your computer that just won't shut down. And it's like it's mm. it's not saved in the right spot. Mm. And, and so every time you kind of, or every now and then when you try and do something, it kind of comes back up and then that's sort of interfering. And the, the, the way I correctly or incorrectly think about it like you know you've got to work with someone to kind of get that saved somewhere so that in the in a a spot where it's not not causing problems or something like that exactly that's that's a really good way of thinking about it actually i may steal that (laughs) um, because it it is it's like every time you know when i was trying to to sign up to skype this morning yeah i kept having a um a pop-up window kept coming up over the top of it and i couldn't see see the window so i couldn't get on with what I was wanting to do because this little pop-up just kept getting in the way. Mm. That's, yeah, that's exactly what's happening for a lot of them. They can't get on with uh, what they want to be doing because something from the past just keeps jumping up and, and getting in their way. So, mm. so that's the problem. So what does EMDR entail for someone and, and how does that work? EMDR is, well, I mean, it's a it's a collection of, of sort of techniques and approaches, but the main part, the, the part where we do sort of the processing work is we, we get the client to identify the worst part of the memory and then we use a little bit of distancing. So we might get them to recall it like they're looking at a photo or like it was happening to someone else or something like that. And... The most important part with EMDR is we take that part of the memory and we pair it with the negative belief that was happening at the time. Mm. So um, for a lot of people in this situation, it will be, I'm not safe. Um, And that's what's maintaining the memory because the brain is trying to tell them, you're still not safe, you're still not safe, you're still not safe. So we kind of bring that out. We pair them, we purposely pair them. And then you start the, the bilateral stimulation which can be eye movements, it can be tapping, it can be audio, anything that requires both sides of the brain to be paying attention and alternating their attention Mm. will tax working memory enough that the memory will start to distance. So I I usually explain it that, (laughs) this is possibly showing my age, you know, this has got filed in the wrong place of a filing cabinet 
and the eye movements or the bilateral stimulation is how we get past not having the key. We kind of distract the filing cabinet so we can access that memory, take it out and then put it back where it's supposed to go. Mm -hmm. And that, that is, that is literally what happens. And the really bizarre and amazing thing is how quickly it happens. Mm. So you can go from, we use SUDS, the subjective distress scale to ask people, you know, when we, when we start, how distressing, when you go back to that memory, when you go back to that picture in your mind of, we'll say at, at the moment, we're getting a lot of people who are really struggling with the loss of, of animals and there's some really horrible pictures that they have in their heads of, of that. So when you think of that and you think I'm not safe, how distressing is that out of 10? Zero, no distress, 10 maximum distress. Mm-hmm. And usually we're starting at like an eight or a nine and within the space of maybe 20 minutes, we'll get it down to a one or a two mm. and that'll continue to process over time and and usually they will always remember the image but they will they will have distance from it they will have space from it they will have the chance to see it from from afar and they won't be re-experiencing all of the emotional and physical sensations that they had at the time once we get to that point then we can do something called integration where we look for a positive belief that cancels out the negative belief. So if it's if the negative belief was I'm not safe, we look for a positive belief that they can take with them. Uh, I'm safe now, or I have choices now, or I can handle this, whatever it might be. And we bolster the positive belief to take over from the old negative belief, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And again, you can usually get a pretty good buy into the positive belief within about 20 minutes. Mm. They'll go from not believing it at all to believing it almost totally. It really is quite a bizarre experience. I think anyone who works with trauma should find an EMDR therapist and have a couple of sessions themselves <laughs> just to see what it feels like because, honestly, your um, your therapist brain will be going, what just happened? Um <laughs> <laughs> And your client brain that's working on whatever the negative thought will be going, I'm feeling pretty good though. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's the most, it's the strangest experience, but it just, it just works so well. Wow. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. That's it's such a great explanation. Mm. Do you have thoughts or questions? <laughs> You've gone blank. blank. You've gone blank. What do you like about working with people in this situation? <sighs> I like that, you know, one of the core principles of 12-point psychology is empowering people and demystifying psychology. And I think this work goes a long way to do that. Mm-hmm. So people who have never considered seeing a psychologist who, who really believe that psychology is just for crazy people, they get to see that that's not what it is at all, that psychology is just coming to understand and and deal with your mind in a in a more effective, more helpful way. And that's something I think, well, I, I personally think everyone could use about seven years of therapy. <laughs> um, but, but it definitely, it, it gives you the chance to to make a really big impact really quite quickly. Mm. A lot of the clients I work with, I work with a lot of long-term clients and, you know, you, you might be working for years to get a relatively small shift in behavior. Whereas for this sort of 
especially the acute trauma work, yeah, the, the, the people leave after one session or, or one, one chat and they're feeling much better. Mm. Yeah. And you know you've given them tools that's going to be helpful for years to come. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the interesting things about working in a, a setting where things are very alive and dynamic in terms of psychological processes and that mm. the right intervention at the right time with somebody is just really fascinating to watch and just sort of see the natural processes of recovery take over and Mm. and just how resilient some people are we noticed on your website you do it talks about animal assisted therapy do you uh do you want to tell us a little bit about that we can see on skype that there's a uh, a bearded dragon in the background (laughs) yes yes that's ziggy that's ziggy Ziggy, he's a five-year-old central bearded dragon. And yes, aside from demystifying psychology and empowering people, I also wanted a place that was animal-assisted therapy friendly. So eight years ago, I I got my first dog and she was an incredibly friendly, incredibly people-oriented dog. And I started learning about animal-assisted therapy. I saw what an amazing effect that she had just on people that we met on walks and things mm-hmm. like that. And I started wondering about how that might apply to to the therapy space. And I discovered that you know, animal-assisted therapy was a real thing with a, with a real developing evidence base. And it sits very nicely with, with my theoretical framework around attachment and neurodevelopmental work. Uh, Bruce Perry, who's one of the key figures in in trauma and attachment and neurodevelopmental Mm. trauma in particular, is now talking about the virtues of animal-assisted therapy when you're working with trauma in that bottom-up way. Mm. With the sensory side um, of things. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And he is 100% right. But the, the, the tricky part was a lot of places are not set up to have a dog on site. A lot of places were reluctant to have a dog on site. Uh, and there's a lot of practical considerations you have to think about when you're working with a dog all day. Um, you know, where are you going to take them to the toilet, for example? <laughs> Do people have allergies? Do people have phobias? All of this kind of thing. So 12 Points was set up to be animal friendly. Our our officers all have access to outside courtyards so that the dogs can run around. So we've got 10 therapy dogs now. Wow. Plus, <laughs> not me personally, but between, between all of our clinicians, I've I've got three of them. But. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, once you once you start doing it, though, you you can't stop. I could never go back to not working with the animals. It's just amazing we, the we... the results that you get, the engagement that you get, and for yourself as well. Mm. It's just, it's amazing. We, we occasionally get a therapy dog coming into the hospital. It's, it's sort of a new yeah. thing this year. And... I'm I'm always a bit like oh, I can do therapy without a dog, and then as soon as I see the dog, I'm like, oh, look at you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think one of one of my favourite memories was one of the organisations that I did work in. There was someone who was very uh, against the idea and put up a lot of barriers, and it took about it took about nine months of paperwork and negotiations and OHS risk assessments and all of this kind of thing. And then the first day that I came in with Rory, this person who had sort of put up all of the objections and stuff fell to their knees, got in her face and just started going, oh, whoosh, whoosh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. The power of animal-assisted therapy, it is just, 
I, I, it was unbelievable. <laughs> maybe, maybe we need to get you back on, and we'll have a have a proper conversation about that. I think about the animals. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I could talk about that one for hours for sure. It, it is one of the big reasons as well why we did, or why why I started up Neighbours in Recovery, because we do a lot of work with animal rescue and wildlife rescue, mm-hmm. and those guys are all really struggling as well right now. Yeah. So we wanted to be able to offer to support to them as well. Hmm. Yes, nice. so we're going to put a link to your 12-point psychology webpage where you've got a lot of resources and some good information about the people's responses to mm. the bushfires. And we thought we'd also put a link to, I think the APS has some, some good information mm. as well. Is there anything else before we go that uh, you think we should cover? Or The only other thing, again, similar to other types of grief, everyone worries about what to say and what not mm. to say. My advice to them is always clunky contact is better than no contact. <laughs> yep. you, you're better off saying something, even if it's the wrong thing, than saying nothing and withdrawing completely yep. because it, it is really important that people know that, that you're there. You're not really going to make it worse. <laughs> you know, for, for most of the people who've been affected by this, things are already pretty bad. You saying, again, inverted commas, the wrong thing is really not going to compound their trauma, but disappearing from their life certainly could. Yeah, mm. I can certainly speak from oncology experience that that's that's a big problem people have is that they people avoid them for mm. whatever reason, and you know turn up turn up with some food or say hi, send them a text message. It doesn't have to be a big thing. Yeah, and, that, and you're sort of saying that's a similar kind of experience. Very much, very much. Yeah, a, a text. How are you doing today? Mm. That's 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 my favourite. That's my you know not how are you doing because they're not doing well. Mm. <laughs> how are you doing today? Yeah. Maybe today was better than yesterday. Maybe today is a bit worse and you need a bit of a chat. You know, but how are you doing today? Mm. Great, nice. Uh, so we're going to put up in the show notes links to places where you can donate if you want to help out with things. We have a whole bunch of options. Some of them are for helping firefighters. We also have some wildlife options and some links to donating to the Australian Red Cross and the Salvation Army. If you can spare, you know, five, ten dollars to help out, then that's great. You know, skip the coffee and send it that direction. Yeah, yeah. So uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been, it's been fascinating. Mm. Uh, yeah. It's been, it's been everything I wanted and more. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. This is good. Yeah, it's been great. Um, I should say as well, actually, if you're all right, to put a link to the Neighbours in Recovery site. So Absolutely. So if people want to, to sign up. We have a lot of mental health providers signing up to provide support, but we also have people, we, we've just had a group of builders from New South Wales or from Sydney went down to Mogo and Maruya over the weekend and literally rebuilt fences. Wow. So we're coordinating that type of thing as well. Nice. I've got the link to that, so I'll pop that on there. So uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. Um, if you did enjoy the show, please rate or review our show. If you want to know more about Two Shrinks Pod, Amy and I, uh, go to twoshrinkspod.com. And if you did like the show, tell someone about it. Uh, that is the way that we often get listeners is through word of mouth or put a link up on your social media that kind of stuff so we will see you again soon and danielle thanks for being here thank you very much for having me